Unsung Heroes, number five, Felipe, nineteen thirty one to two thousand sixteen. Dad, you were born five years before the Spanish Civil War that would see your father exiled. Language came later to you than to your little brother Manuel, and you stuttered for a time. Unlike those who speak incessantly with nothing to say, you were quiet and reserved. Your mother mistook shyness for dimness, a tragic mistake that scarred you for life. When your brother Manuel died at the age of three from meningitis, you heard your mom exclaim, God took my bright boy and left me the dull one. You were four or five at the time. You never forgot those words. How could you? Yet you loved your mom with all your heart. But you also withdrew further into a shell, solitude, your companion and best friend. You were, in fact, an exceptional child. Stuttering went away at five or so, never to return. And by the time you were in middle school, your teacher called your mom in for a rare conference and told her that yours was a gifted mind and that you should be prepared for university study in the sciences, particularly engineering. She wrote your father, exiled in Argentina, to tell him the good news, that your teachers believed you would easily gain entrance to the then and now highly selective public university, where seats were few, prized, and very difficult to attain based on merit-based competitive exams. Your father's response? Buy him a couple of oxen and let him plow the fields. That reply from a highly respected man who was a big fish in a tiny pond in his native Oledos of the time is beyond comprehension. He had apparently opted to preserve his own self-interest in having his son continue his family business and also work the family lands in his absence. That scar, too, was added to those that would never heal in your pure huge heart. Left with no support for living expenses for college, all it would have required, you moved on. Disappointed and hurt, but not angry or bitter, you would simply find another way. You took the competitive exams for the two local military training schools that would provide an excellent vocational education and pay you a small salary in exchange for military service. Of the hundreds of applicants for the prized few seats in each of the two institutions, you scored first for the toughest of the two and, ironically, 13th for the second school. You had your pick. You chose Fabrica de Armas, the lesser of the two, so that a classmate who had scored just below the cutoff point at the better school and had not applied to the second one could be admitted. That was you, always and forever. 
At the military school, you were finally in your element. You were to become a world-class machinist there, a profession that would have gotten you well-paid work anywhere on earth for as long as you wanted it. You were truly a mechanical genius, who years later would add electronics, auto mechanics, and specialized welding to his toolkit through formal training. Given a well-stocked machine shop, you could reverse engineer every machine there without blueprints and build a duplicate machine shop. You became a gifted master mechanic and worked in line and supervisory positions at a handful of companies throughout your life in Argentina and in the United States, including Westinghouse, Warner Lambert, and PepsiCo. You loved learning, especially in your fields, electronics, mechanics, and welding, and expected perfection in everything you did. Every difficult job at work was always given to you everywhere you worked. You would not sleep at night when a problem needed solving. You'd sketch and calculate and resketch solutions and worked even in your dreams with singular passion. You were more than a match for the academic and physical rigors of military school. But life was difficult for you in the Franco era when some instructors would deprecatingly refer to you as Rosho, Galician for red, reflecting your father's support for the failed republic. Eventually the abuse was too much for you to bear. Once, while standing at attention in a corridor with other cadets awaiting roll call, you were repeatedly poked in the back surreptitiously. Moving would cause demerits, and demerits could cause loss of points on your final grade and arrest for successive weekends. You took it a while, then lost your temper. You turned to the cadet behind you and in a fluid motion grabbed him by his buttoned jacket and one-handedly hung him on a hook above the window where you were standing in line. He dashed about hanging by the back of his jacket until he was brought down by irate military instructors. You got weekend arrest for many weeks and a 10% reduction in your final grade. A similar fate befell a co-worker a few years later in Buenos Aires who called you a son of a whore. You lifted him by one hand by his throat this time and held him there until your co-workers intervened, forcibly persuading you to put him down. That lesson was learned by all in no uncertain terms. Leave Felipe's mom alone. You were incredibly strong, especially in your youth, no doubt in part because of rigorous farm work, military school training, and competitive sports. As a teenager, you once unwisely bent down to pick something up in view of a ram, presenting the animal an irresistible target. It headbutted you and sent you flying into a haystack. It too quickly it too quickly learned its lesson. You dusted yourself off, charged the ram, grabbed it by its horns, and twirled it around once, throwing it atop 
the very same haystack it had thrown you. The animal was unhurt, but learned to give you a wide berth from that day forward. Overall, you were very slow to anger, absent headbutting, repeated pokings, or disrespectful references to your mom by anyone. I seldom saw you angry, and it was mom, not you, who was the disciplinarian, slipper in hand. There were very few slaps from you for me. Mom, on the other hand, would smack my behind with a slipper often. When I was little, mostly because I could be a real pain, wanting to know, try, and do everything, completely oblivious to the meaning of the word no, or to my own limitations. Mom would sometimes insist that you give me a proper beating. On one such occasion, for a forgotten transgression when I was nine, you took me to your bedroom, took off your belt, sat me next to you, and whipped your own arm repeatedly, whispering to me, cry, which I was happy to do unbidden. Don't tell mom, he said. I did not. No doubt she knew. The prospect of serving in a military that considered you a traitor by blood became harder and harder to bear. And in the third year of school, one year prior to graduation, you left to join your exiled father in Argentina to start a new life. You left behind a mother and two sisters you dearly loved to try your fortune in a new land. Your dog thereafter refused food or drink, and died of grief. You arrived in Buenos Aires to see a father you had not seen for nearly 20 years at the age of 17. You were too young to work legally, but it looked older that you looked older than your years, a shared trait. So you lied about your age and immediately found work as a machinist slash mechanic first grade. That was unheard of and brought you some jealousy and complaints in the union shop. The union complained to the general manager about your top salary and rank. He answered, I will give the same rank and salary to anyone in the company who can do what Felipe can do. No doubt the jealousy and grumblings continued for a time, but there were no takers. And you soon won the group over, becoming their protected baby brother mascot. Your dad left for Spain within a year or so after your arrival when Franco issued a general pardon to all dissidents who had not spilt blood, those who were non-combatants. He wanted you to return to help him to reclaim the family business taken over by your mom in his absence with your help. But you refused to give up the high salary, respect, and independence that were denied you at home. You were perhaps 18 and alone, living in a single room by a schoolhouse you had shared with your dad. 
but you had also found a new loving family in your uncle Jose, one of your father's brothers, and his family. Jose and one of his uh, daughters, Nieves, and her husband, Emilio, and their children, Susana, Oscar, Ruben, Gorday, uh, and Osvaldo, became your new nuclear family. You married mom in 1955 and had two failed business ventures in the quickly fading post-World War II Argentina of the late 1950s and early 1960s. The first, a machine shop, left you with a small fortune in unpaid government contract work that the government refused to pay for. The second, a grocery store, also failed due to hyperinflation and credit extended too easily to needy customers. Throughout this, you continued earning an exceptionally good salary, but in the mid-1960s, nearly all of it went to pay back creditors of the failed grocery store. We had some really hard times. Someday, I will write about that in some detail. Mom went to work as a maid, including for wealthy friends, and you left home at 4 a.m., every day to return long after dark to pay the bills. The only luxury you and mom retained was a Catholic school tuition for me. There was no other extravagance. Not paying bills was never an option for you or mom. It never entered your minds. It was not a matter of law or pride, but a matter of honor. There were at least three very lean years when you and mom worked extremely hard, earned very good money, but we were truly, truly poor. You and mom took great pains to hide this from me and suffered great privations to insulate me as best you could from the fallout of a shattered economy and your refusal to cut your losses had done to your life savings and to our once comfortable middle-class life. We came to the U.S. in the late 1960s after waiting for more than three years for visas to a new land of hope. Your sister and brother-in-law, Marisa and Manuel, made their own sacrifices to help bring us here. You had about $1,000 from the down payment on our tiny downsized house and mom's pawned jewelry. Hyperinflation and expenses ate up the remaining mortgage payments due. Other prized possessions were left in a trunk until you could reclaim them. You never did. Even the airline tickets were paid for by Marisa and Manuel. You insisted upon arriving on written terms for repayment, including interest. You were hired on the spot on your first interview as a mechanic first grade, despite not speaking a word of English. Two months later, the debt was repaid. Mom was working too, and we moved into our first apartment. You worked long hours, including Saturdays and daily overtime, to remake a nest egg. Declining health 
forced you to retire at 63, and shortly thereafter, you and Mom moved out of Queens into Orange County. You bought a townhouse two hours from my permanent residence, upstate New York, and for the next decade were happy traveling with friends and visiting us often. Then things started to change. Heart issues, two pacemakers, colon cancer, melanoma, liver and kidney disease caused by your many medications, high blood pressure, gout, gallbladder surgery, diabetes, and still you moved forward like the Energizer Bunny, patched up, battered, scarred, bruised, but unstoppable and unflappable. Then mom started to show signs of memory loss along with her other health issues. She was good at hiding her own ailments, and we noticed much later than we should have that there was a serious problem. Two years ago, her dementia worsened, but still functional, she had gallbladder surgery with complications that required full four separate surgeries in three months. She never recovered and had to be placed in a nursing home. Several, in fact, as the first at first she refused food and you and I refused to simply let her waste away, which would have been kinder, but for the fact that mientras hay vida hay esperanza, as Spaniards say, while there is life, there is hope. There is nothing beyond the power of God. Miracles do happen. For two years, you lived alone, refusing outside help, engendering numerous arguments about having someone go by a few times a week to help clean, cook, do chores. You were nothing if not stubborn, yet another shared trait. The last argument on the subject about two weeks ago ended in your crying. You'd accept no outside help until mom returned home. Period. You were in great pain because of bulging discs in your spine and walked with one of those rolling seats with handlebars that mom and I picked out for you some years ago. You'd sit as needed when the pain was too much, then continue with very little by way of complaints. Ten days ago, you finally agreed that you needed to get to the hospital to drain abdominal fluid. Your failing liver produced it, and it swelled your abdomen and lower extremities to the point where putting on shoes or clothing was very difficult, as was breathing. You called me from a local store crying that you could not find pants that would fit you. We talked long distance, and I calmed you down, as always, not allowing you to wallow in self-pity, but trying to help. You went home and found a new pair of stretch pants Alice and I had bought you, and you were happy. You had two changes of clothes that still fit to take to the hospital. No sweat. All was well. 
The procedure was not dangerous, and you'd undergone it several times in recent years. It would require a couple of days at the hospital, and I'd see you again on the weekend. I could not be with you on Monday, February 22nd, when you had to go to the hospital, as I nearly always had, because of work. You were supposed to be admitted the previous day, Friday, when I was off, but doctors have days off too, and you could not, they could not see you until Monday, when I could not get off of work. But you were not concerned. This was just routine. You'd be fine. I'd see you in just a few days. We'd go see Mom on Friday, when you'd be much lighter and feel much better. Perhaps we'd go shopping for clothes and a procedure, if the procedure still left you with too bloated for your usual clothing. You drove to your doctor and then transported by ambulette. I was concerned, but not too worried. You called me sometime between 5 or 6 p.m. to tell me that you were fine and resting. Don't worry, you said. I'm safe here and well cared for. We talked for a little while about the usual things, with my assuring you I'd see you Friday or Saturday. You were tired and wanted to sleep, and I told you to call me if you woke up later that night or I'd speak to you the following day. Around 10 p.m., I got a call from your cell phone and answered in the usual upbeat manner. Hey, papi. On the other side was a nurse, telling me my dad had fallen. I assured her she was mistaken, as my dad was there for a routine procedure to drain abdominal fluid, not regarding a fall. You don't understand, she said. He fell from his bed and struck his head on a nightstand or something, and his heart stopped. We're working on him for 20 minutes, and it doesn't look good. Can you get here? I could not. I had had two or three glasses of wine shortly before the call with dinner. I could not drive the three hours to Middletown. I cried. I prayed. Fifteen minutes later, I got the call that you were gone. Lost in grief, not knowing what to do, I called my wife. Shortly thereafter came a call from the coroner's office. An autopsy was required. I would not be able to see you. Four days later, your body was finally released to the funeral director I had selected for his experience with the process of interment in Spain. I saw you for the first time to identify your body. I kissed my fingers and touched your mangled brow. I could not even have the comfort of an open casket viewing. You wanted cremation. Your body awaits it as I write this. You were alone, even in death alone. In the hospital, as strangers worked on you. In the medical examiner's office, as you awaited the autopsy. In the autopsy table, as they poked and prodded and further rent your flesh, looking for irrelevant clues that would change nothing and benefit no one, least of all you. I could not be with you for days, and then only 
for a painful moment. We will have a memorial service next Friday with your ashes and a mass on Saturday. I will never again see you in this life. Alice and I will take you home to your hometown in the cemetery of Oledos, La Coruña, Spain, this summer. There you will await the love of your life, who will join you in the fullness of time. She could not understand my tears at your passing. There is one blessing to dementia. She asks for her mom and says she is worried because she has not come to visit her in some time. She is coming, she assures me, whenever I see her. You visited her every day, except when health absolutely prevented it. You spent this February 10th apart for your 61st wedding anniversary, too sick to visit her. Nor was I there. First time. I hope you did not realize you were apart on the 10th, but I doubt it to be the case. I did not mention it, hoping you'd forgotten, and neither did you. You were my link to Mom. She cannot dial or answer a phone, so you would put your cell phone next to her ear whenever I was not in class or a meeting and could speak to her when you were with her in the nursing home. She always recognized me by phone. I am three hours from her. I could visit at most once or twice a month. Now, even that phone landline of eight daily visits is severed. Mom is completely alone, afraid, confused, and I cannot, in the short term at least, do much about that. You were not supposed to die first. It was my greatest fear, and yours. But as with so many things that we cannot change, I put it in the back of my mind. It kept me up many nights, but like you, I still believed and believe in miracles. I would speak every night with you, often for an hour, on the way home from work, late at night during my hour-long commute, or from home on days I worked from home as I cooked dinner. I mostly let you talk, trying to give you what comfort and social outlet I could. You were lonely, sad, stuck in an endless cycle of emotional and physical pain. Lately, you were especially reticent to get off the phone. When mom was home and still relatively well, I'd call every day, too, but usually spoke to you only a few minutes and you'd transfer the phone to mom, with whom I usually chatted much longer. For months, you'd had difficulty hanging up, I knew you did not want to go back to the couch, to a meaningless television program, or to writing more bills. You'd say goodbye, or enough for today, and immediately begin a new thread. Then repeat the cycle, sometimes five or six times. You even told me, at least once, crying recently, 
just hang up on me, or I'll just keep on talking. I loved you, Dad, with all my heart. We argued, and I'd often scream at you in frustration, knowing you would never take it to heart and would usually just ignore me and do as you pleased. I knew how desperately you needed me, and I tried to be as patient as I could. But there were days when I was just too tired, too frustrated, too full of other problems. There were days when I got frustrated with you just staying on the phone for an hour when I needed to call Alice to eat my cold dinner or even to watch a favorite program. I felt guilty and very seldom cut a conversation short. But I was frustrated nonetheless, even knowing how much you needed me and also how much I needed you and how little you asked of me. I would love to hear your voice again, even if you wanted to complain about the same old things or tell me in minutest detail some unimportant aspect of your day. I thought I would have you at least a little longer. A year? Two? God only knew, and I could hope. There would be time. I had so much more to share with you. So much more to learn when life eased up just a bit. You taught me to fish. It didn't take. And to hunt. That took even less. And much of what I know about mechanics and electronics. We worked on our cars together for years, from brake jobs to mufflers to real tune-ups in the days when points, condensers, and timing lights had meaning to rebuilding carburetors and fixing rust and dents and power windows and more. We were friends, good friends, who went on Sunday drives to favorite restaurants or shopping for tools when I was single and lived at home. You taught me everything in life that I needed to know about the things that matter. The rest is meaningless paper and window dressing. I knew all your faults and all your many colossal strengths. And I knew you to be the better man. Not even close. I could never do what you did. I could never excel in my fields as you did in yours. You were the real deal in every way, from every angle, throughout your life. I did not always treat you that way but I loved you very deeply, as anyone who knew us knows. More importantly, you knew it too. I told you often, unembarrassed in the telling, I love you, Dad. The world was enriched by your journey. You do not leave behind wealth or a body of work to outlive you. You never had your fifteen minutes in the sun. But you mattered. God knows your value, your absolute integrity, and the purity of your heart. I will never know a better man. I will love you and miss you and carry you in my heart every day of my life. God bless you, Dad. <laughs>